0: All right, again. We're in John chapter eight this morning, and I do want to mention for the for those that listen online and don't uh, have the benefit of all of the reading that our deacon did for us this morning. I want to mention those scriptures to them because it's very important that you have those in your toolbox to appreciate and understand what's taking place here in John chapter eight. So our deacon read this morning Deuteronomy chapter one, verses sixteen and seventeen, Deuteronomy sixteen verses eighteen through twenty-two, and then chapter seventeen verses one through thirteen. Also, Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. In Exodus, chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. Um, You have to know what the rules of the game are if you're going to play the game. And uh, no doubt when we all played uh, games as a kid, somebody had to read the box and tell us how to play the game. Otherwise, it was no fun to play. And uh, I never wanted to be that person. I didn't like doing that. I found it tedious. I'd much rather have somebody explain it to me. But it's important that we understand and appreciate those um, rules there so we can appreciate how the Lord deals with this situation here that's brought before him. Um, Before I I read it, I I want us to appreciate um, the emotionally charged um, environment that is there. Imagine yourself to be this woman. She was literally dragged out of bed and paraded up on Temple Mount uh, in the presence of the scribes and the Pharisees, and there was an audience, no doubt, listening to Jesus teach. It's an incredibly charged situation, and I can only imagine what was going through this woman's head. Uh, And we'll talk about that in a minute. So we tend to read, at least I tend to read the scriptures with some uh, sterility in my thinking about, you know, it happened 2,000 years ago. And uh, God has put it in here, and I'm going to read it and learn something about him, which is all true. But just imagine what was going through this poor woman's head and her emotional state of being. In any event, with that in our minds, let's uh, now pick it up. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And let me also, another announcement I want to make here before we start here. There is so much hypocrisy going on with respect to the Jews. It is so deep and so rampant that... um, the, um, the sin is, is everywhere. Now, last week we had talked about the Feast of Tabernacles. Deuteronomy chapter 23 says in two places that that's a seven-day feast. It's a seven-day feast. It says that here in verse um, 37, And the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried. And he, he said something. We talked about that last week. The eighth day is a Sabbath day. And I mentioned that in passing last week, and I didn't build much on it. Other than that, what a graceful thing it is that God would give you a Sabbath day at the end of that. So maybe you could think about um, the reason the Lord had set that whole feast up to begin with. When the feast is over here, it says in verse 53 that every man went unto his own house. And then we pick up verse 1 in John chapter 8 where it says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. Why do you suppose he went there and everybody else went home? Well, you recall uh, a Sabbath day is a day when people are prohibited from traveling more than a certain distance. So I'm of a mind that the last day of the feast is the seventh day because Deuteronomy 23 twice says it's a seven day feast, the eighth day is a Sabbath day. So he goes to the Mount of Olives. There's only one place in the Bible that tells you how far in a definitive way, how far you can travel on the Sabbath day. And that's from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus, if that was a Sabbath day, he's the only one who complied with the law. Everybody else is a hypocrite. They're doing work on the Sabbath day. He is not a hypocrite. And they had accused him of violating the Sabbath when he healed that individual. So I'm, just, I'm sharing that, this with you. Also, when the Lord came down from the Mount of Olives into the temple um, and then cleansed it, that was a Sabbath day also. So they were buying and selling in the temple on the Sabbath day. Again, utter hypocrisy, rampant everywhere at every level in their culture. With that in mind, now let's read John chapter 8. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one beginning with the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that thou would open up this portion of scriptures unto us that we might see that thou art the righteous judge. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, I think most people are familiar with this section of scripture here in John chapter 8 with respect to the adulterous woman being brought before Jesus. People like to, I think, import meaning into the scriptures, and uh, this particular section, I think has been misunderstood and misinterpreted by lots and lots of people. As a matter of fact, over all the years I've studied this, and I preached on this first back in 2011, and then again, actually before that, 2008. So I've I've been studying it for a very long time. I have only read one other individual who interpreted, I think, correctly. Um, People take John chapter 3.16, and they want to stretch that, stretch their misunderstanding of John 3.16 over the whole of the bible thinking that Jesus loves everybody and that's not what John 3:16 says. So John 3:16 they like they like for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So they understand what that says in terms of God so loved the world thinking that he loves the world rather than in this manner he loved the world, he loved the elect that he died for them. Verse 17 They like that verse, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. They like that. They don't like verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God doesn't need to come, at least on the first visit, and condemn anybody, because they're condemned already. That's what that scripture says. If you don't believe, you are condemned already. People don't like that verse. They don't like verse thirty-six of John chapter three. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. That's good. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. We're condemned already. God's wrath is on them because they do not believe. People don't like that verse. So we can appreciate here in John chapter 8, with respect to Jesus' ministry, that up to this point it's been pretty popular. He's healed people, he's taught with authority. He's fed thousands. He's done miracles. Uh, as a matter of fact, his ministry was so popular that we had read in John chapter 6, verse 15, that people would take him by force and make him a king. They really liked the things that he was doing because it was all about feeding. <laughs> it was all about the things that they were receiving in the flesh, and that's always very popular with the people. I notice our governor is presently um, um, politicking or campaigning and uh, talking about all the wonderful things in terms of the giveaways that he's giving to the state. You know, free, uh, pre-K through 12, all that's all going to be free. He's giving businesses money, and he's sending checks out to people because that appeals to people. And so it appealed to the people here. The Lord was not doing that for that reason, of course, but that's what found its way into people's heart was what they would receive in the flesh. That's always popular with people. So people think that Jesus loves everybody. And so they also like to go and take what we read about in Mark chapter 2 and import that also here into John chapter 8. In Mark chapter 2, that's an occasion when we read that the Lord first preaches the word. It says that in John, Mark chapter 2, around verse 3, that Jesus preaches to them, preaches the word. And then we read in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And they take that and they bring that in here where the word sin, in terms of forgiveness, he never said, I forgive you of your sins. Never said that. There's no mention of faith anywhere in here. So we don't want to bring that, what we read there, and bring it into here. This is a very different scene, very different circumstances. He never says, I forgive you. He says, I don't condemn you. Doesn't need to. If she doesn't believe in the Lord, she's condemned already. We already read that. So this is a very different scene. Now, though Jesus is popular with the people in many ways, we see that as we move further in John here, that the antagonism grows. The antagonism between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees grows. And we can read about that in terms of the language that's taking place here. And the people are divided over him. They don't know what to think about him. Um, One thing we can appreciate is that they do not know the law. They do not know the law. They misapply the law. Um, throughout the scriptures, but we're going to see that they misapply here. They do not keep the law. Jesus told them that in John 7, 19. You do not keep the law. And one of the things he says in John chapter 7, verse 24 is, he says, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So the gauntlet's been thrown down here, and that's what they're going to do. They're going to try to um, trip him up so that they might have something to accuse him of. Now, the law is rather quite encompassing. You can just think to yourself, well, it's just the Ten Commandments, and if I keep those, well, I'm doing okay. Or you can think, well, it's everything that's in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Or you can expand that to think, well, it's everything that is in the Bible. And actually, it's everything that's in the Bible in terms of what God uses to convict a man. We know that the Gentiles, by nature, do the things that are contained in the law, showing that they're a law unto themselves. God has has written these things. everybody's heart. So think of the law in the broadest of of context. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. So that should be something that we include in that too. In Zechariah chapter 7 verse 10, the Lord admonishes the people. He says, let none of you imagine evil against your brother in your heart. That's something that I think affects everybody, certainly here, because the people are trying to trip Jesus up, and we know that because it says it right in the scripture there, that, they're, that they are testing him, tempting him. So um, the common view that we read here is that Jesus answers in a very clever way, and he trips them all up, and he delivers her from the bad man, and he lets her go free. Now, nobody disputes the fact that she's been caught in adultery in the very act. nobody disputes that. So the fact that he trips everybody up, he's very clever what he says um, and flips everything on its head, we can all go home and feel very good about Jesus and we can all think to ourselves, well, I've got nothing to worry about because if Jesus lets her go, he will let me go too. And adultery in the heart is certainly not as bad as that. Bad as that, And I have never met a man that has not committed adultery in his heart. The Lord even talks about that. you committed in your heart, uh, you know, you've, you've committed adultery. And so people use other people by which standard they measure themselves. And they think, well, I haven't done anything that's so bad. So if he lets her go, she was caught in the very act. Certainly, he's going to let me go. And I would ask you this question. If breaking the seventh commandment doesn't get God's attention or condemnation, then what will? Obviously, we don't need the cross. She didn't need the cross. Apparently, Jesus let her go, didn't condemn her. So let's take a step back here and look at this. Big picture here and see what's taking place here. What we have is a very interesting legal drama taking place here, far better than anything you'd see on Perry Mason here. We have a defendant. We have plaintiffs. We have the accusers. We have the judge. And in the Bible, the judge is also the jury. Our our legal system is slightly different than what you see in the scriptures. Our jurists are the ones who pass judgment. The judge is the one who simply makes sure everybody follows the rules. But... In God's economy, the judge is the one that makes, every, makes sure the rules are followed, and he's the one who also passes judgment. So we have a defendant, we have an accused, the accusers, the plaintiffs, we have a judge, and we also have the audience. In every courtroom, you've got people sitting in the background. So we have a lot of people in the audience there and right here. So the question is, how is this going to play itself out? What is it going to teach us about God? What's it going to teach us about the law? And what is it going to teach us about judgment? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So what's this going to teach us about righteousness? And so let me share this with you. The more you know the law, the more you know about Christ. He's the fulfillment of the law. So again, looking at this courtroom drama, how does this apply to you and me and which One of the players are you. Are you a defendant? Are you like the adulterous woman? Are you an accuser, like the scribes and the Pharisees, like the law or like religious people might be? Are you like the judge? Or are you just somebody in the audience that just is interested in seeing how this is going to play out because you're not really affected by it one way or another? But as is true in all points in Scripture, there's always more in view here. So let's expand the picture a little bit bigger because... Adultery is also a form of, let me reverse that, idolatry is a form of adultery. Spiritual adultery is what is in view here in terms of our identification because you are betrothed to the bride of Christ. You are the bride of Christ, betrothed to Christ. Now the seventh commandment, the seventh commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus teaches that that is not only physical adultery, like she's been caught in the very act of, but it's also adultery you might commit in your heart. To look after a woman, to lust after her is to commit adultery. He teaches that. There's also spiritual adultery. So there's three levels of adultery here. And those are all related to, particularly the last one is related to the first commandment. Thou shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. Remember when the uh, people asked him what's the most important commandment? That's the most important one. Now, our deacon read for us in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And so I'm going to take a look at some of those verses that are in there. Again, in Deuteronomy 17, verses two through five. five. Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 5. If there be found among you within any of thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee, man or woman, it's interesting that he's going to include both here, man or woman, and hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God in transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods and worshiped them. What are they doing? They're committing idolatry. They're serving other gods. Verse four, and be told thee, and thou hast heard it, and inquired it diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing be certain, that such abomination is wrought in Israel, then thou shalt bring forth that man or that woman, which have committed that wicked thing unto thy gates, even that man or that woman, and they shall stone them with stones till they die. It's interesting they don't just speak use the term man in a generic context, which the scripture does in many places. It includes man and woman in here, so you get this idea that the um, of a man and a woman can both engage in a um, adulterous act here now in jeremiah chapter 3 which he did not read now i'm going to read that for you jeremiah chapter 3 verses 6 and 9 the lord is going to make a very direct connection between idolatry and idol- um, adultery it's not a coincidence these worms riding with each other in jeremiah chapter 3 verses 6 through 9 The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high tree and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said unto her, after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me. But she returned not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw... When for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks to which I would add stocks and bonds and ETFs in our 401k and IRAs and, and Porsches and Ferraris and any other set of toys. Everybody has their toys and idols and things that they look to. Everybody does. Everybody is guilty of this. Um, and we read in Romans, again, a parallel that the Lord sets forth here with idolatry and Adultery. In Romans chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. Speaking of hypocrisy, of course, here is the broader context. Romans chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. Thou, therefore, which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? This would be in the context of stealing God's glory. Again, a violation of the first commandment. Verse 22. Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? So there is a parallel verse there, much like you find in the Proverbs, in this case, between adultery and idolatry. They are related to each other, and again, they're both a violation of the first commandment about thou shalt have no other gods before me. So this is true not only of the Jews in the law, Mosaic law, but also of Gentiles also. God has actually written the Ten Commandments on the heart of every man that they should have no other gods before me. It's guilty of those out in the world, and it's guilty of those in the church as well. When you commit adultery, what you do is you have an intimate relationship with somebody other than the one to whom you are either married to or betrothed to. Either married to or betrothed to. Now, in James chapter 4, verse 4, the Lord kind of hits us all on the head with this. In James 4, verse 4. We know that the Bible is written to believers because we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the only person who could understand it is a believer with the benefit of the Holy Ghost. So we can appreciate why the Lord would address us in this manner. In James 4, 4, he says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, male and female, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God, Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You're committing adultery if you're a friend of the world. You're chasing after the foolish things of this world. You have other gods between you and, and God Almighty. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, along the same lines, the Lord says, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter, More than me is not worthy of me. That's Matthew 10, 37. So you can have idols that are people. You don't just have to be in love with a Ferrari. You can be in love with a sports figure. You can be in love with your spouse or your child. You can idolize them. You can have them um, in higher esteem than you have uh, the Lord our God. So to have anything in your heart between you and God is to commit adultery. It's to have other gods between you, for which... The law will condemn you. So now let's go back to our our legal scene here. We have an audience. Again, we have the defendant, the adulterous woman, and we have the judge. I would suggest to you that there's nobody in the audience. Everybody is a defendant in this case. Everybody's a defendant in this case. Recall back in Deuteronomy, we had read that you'll be stoned for idolatry. You're condemned. So... What does the law do? People think, and I have read this in terms of how other people interpret this, they think to themselves that the law brings you to Christ. The law does not bring you to Christ. The <coughs> law brings you to the judge. There's a difference. The law brings you to the judge. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, when you read through that, you will read that the letter killeth, speaking of the law, the letter killeth, it is administration of death, it is a ministration of condemnation. Those are God's words. The letter killeth. It's a ministration of death. It's a ministration of condemnation. So again, if the law brings you to Christ, if that was true then, the letter maketh alive. The letter, the law would be administration of life. And it would be administration of commendation and not condemnation. Obviously, all of those things are false. If it's true, then every Jew under the Mosaic law would have been brought to Christ and would live. But that's not how this works itself out. If you go to Galatians chapter 3, and this is where the misunderstanding comes from. In Galatians chapter 3, because there's some words that are in italics, and uh, those words should not be there. They are not in the Greek. So in Galatians chapter 3, if you read verses 19 all the way down through uh, uh, portions of chapter 4, it's all about Christ coming to you and not about the law bringing you to Christ here. In verse 19 here it says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, And it was ordained of angels in the hand of a mediator. Well, who's the seed? Well, the Lord just tells us that up in verse 16. The seed is Christ. So the law was there until the seed should come. In verse 21, it says, Is the law then against the promise of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the law doesn't bring life. It brings condemnation. Verse 22 But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. The law proves that men are sinners, and we know that the wages of sin is death. Verse 23, but before faith came, faith is a synonym for Christ, before faith came, we were kept under the law. We were in prison under the law. We were in bondage. Not a coincidence here that in, Roman, in John chapter 8, it immediately follows the Feast of Tabernacles, which was to commemorate when God brought them out of the house of bondage. This woman is going to be brought out of the house of bondage because Christ is coming to her in grace and mercy, and we'll talk about that later. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto faith, whereafter we should, um, for where, which should afterwards be revealed." So faith comes to you. Verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster. Now take out the three italicized words. Wherefore law was our schoolmaster unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. So you were under the schoolmaster, you were under the um, the law until Christ came to you. Verse 25, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Again, everything in here is about faith coming to you. It's about Christ coming to you. To you, It's not about the law bringing you anywhere. You're stuck in bondage. You're in prison until Christ comes to you. Now go down to Galatians chapter 4. Let's look at verses uh, 3 through 6. In verses 3 it says, Even so we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time is come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. God sent forth his Son. Verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And in verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So this whole section here is all about Christ coming to you. It's about God coming to you. It's about the spirit coming to you. It's not about the law bringing you to him. It doesn't do that. The law keeps you in prison, keeps you in bondage. It brings you to the judge and then to the grave. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And so understanding and appreciating what the law does and how to administer the law, how to interpret the law, because there are sections that overlap each other, and it's difficult to uh, apprehend these things, which is why we have lawyers today, just as uh, they had lawyers. And who is the chief lawyer, of course, is Jesus Christ. So if the law is too hard for you to understand, we had read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 8, That If it's too hard for you to work this out, then you bring it to the place of God's choosing. You bring it to the place of God's choosing and who do you bring it to? Well, God has appointed judges in the gates of the city, but if it's too hard, you bring it to the place of God's choosing and you bring it to the priests and you bring it to the judge that will be in that time here. So what have they done unknowingly? What have they unknowingly done? They've brought it to the place of God's choosing, which is the temple, and they have brought it to the high priest, which is Jesus Christ, and they have brought it to the judge which is Jesus Christ. God is sovereign over all the affairs of men, and no matter how clever and crafty men think they are, the truth is, they are not. In John 5:22, the Lord had said, "For the Father judgeth no man, but hath comm- committed all judgment unto the Son, which is Him." So they unknowingly are complying with Deuteronomy 17. They're bringing it to the place of his choosing. And they're bringing it to him. They're bringing it to the judge and they're bringing it to the high priest because the matter is too hard for them to judge. So, what does this judge do? What is he doing? It says he was sitting there. What is he sitting? He's teaching. He's sitting like a judge. That's verse 2 of John chapter 8. One thing is certain he was not walking with them, he was not standing with them. And he was not sitting among them, as we read about in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In Psalm 1, 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. He was not walking in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners. He was not standing in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. He was sitting as the judge. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Christ is that man who meditates in the law of the Lord, and he delights in the law of the Lord. We read in verse 6 of John chapter 8 that when this situation presents itself, he stoops down and he writes with his finger. Writes with his finger. That's a conspicuous thing for him to do. Could have picked up a stick, could have done a number of things, but he stoops down and he writes with his finger. How was the law given to Moses? It was given by the finger of God. He wrote on a rock the law of God. That happens in two places in Scripture. We know that law was given twice. I'm talking about two different situations. One is when the law was given. God gave it to Moses twice uh, because of the sinful nature of the people, and we can learn about Christ in that um, situation. But for the sake of today, let's just appreciate that the law was given by the finger of God, and it was also given... In judgment in the book of Daniel, when he had written on the wall, Meeny, Meeny, a people, a parson, and he was judged on that day. So the law came, or I should say, the finger of God appeared on two separate occasions, two situations. One when the law was given, and the other time when judgment was rendered. So keep in mind that Jesus is the Almighty. Last week, in a different context, I'd mentioned Isaiah 33 22. Isaiah thirty twenty two 22 says that the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. Jesus, of course, is the king of kings. He will judge. He's already said that. And he is indeed the lawgiver. So it says down, he stoops down, and he's writing as though he heard them not. Now, those words are in italics, but there is a Greek word. They should not be in italics. And uh, there is a Greek word there that says means that, that he did something with the idea that he didn't hear them nor did he see them. So... Let's ask this question: Do you think the Lord needs to hear any of these accusations against this woman? The answer is no. He doesn't need to hear any of those things. What do we read about him in Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 through 13? In Hebrews 4:12 through13, it says, "For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Jesus is the Word of God, piercing even to the design, dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and marrow." and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Lord discerns everybody's thoughts and intents of their hearts. You don't know what's in your heart, but God does. Verse 13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus does not need to hear any of these accusations. He knows what is in the heart of all men, He knows this woman is an adulteress, literally and spiritually. He knows that. He knows what the law says. He is the lawgiver. Interestingly enough, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, in Isaiah 11, verse 3, it says of Christ, speaking of Christ, it says, he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. Verse 4, but with righteousness shall he judge. I love it when I see Jesus fulfill scripture indicating that he is in fact the Christ. That's exactly what he's doing there. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge. That's Isaiah 11:3 and 4. Now, in John chapter 4, verse 24, he had said to them, Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. That was a quote that's almost identical to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 16. So what you see in the New Testament, again, always comes out of the Old Testament. And this is exactly what the Lord does. It says he does it here as though he heard them not. So question people like to ask is, what did he write? What did he write? I don't know what he wrote, but I know what he did not write. What he did not write was, people who live in glass houses should not throw stones. That is not what he wrote. People in glass houses should not throw stones. That's the common interpretation. This is a hypothetical. If that is what God said, if that's what Jesus said, or if that's what he meant when he did something that he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. If, if what he meant was people in glass houses should not throw stones, then if that's what we understand it to mean, then, then we should move forward with the understanding that unless you have no sin, then and only then can you carry out the law. Now, does that make sense to anybody here? Jesus has then just undermined the entire law because all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know that Jesus, who is God, created all dominions, principalities, and powers in all of their administrations. He has created the office of the judge and the priests, and they are all sinners. That we know to be true. By whom he has told Israel, they shall be judged. And yet, by a misinterpretation of this passage, apparently, they are all unqualified to judge because of their own personal sin. Therefore, the law is a travesty, And the wages of sin is not death. The adulterous woman rightfully goes free, as should all sinners, because nobody here can judge you. Now, isn't Jesus clever when he said that he said? In one statement, he throws the entire law and its application of 1,500 years right on its head. And yet we know that on the Day of Atonement that the high priest is to first confess his sins before he goes into the... um, um, tabernacle. He first confesses his sins, and then he confesses the sins of the nation. So we know that the fact that everybody is a sinner is already baked into the law, and that everybody should understand that and appreciate that, and yet they're still qualified to carry out the law. So obviously, that interpretation is illogical and doesn't comport with the big picture of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, the Lord says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. The common interpretation is he just destroyed the law. He says, Think not that I am coming to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So, if that interpretation is true, sinners can't judge. And Jesus is either a liar or a fool, or he fears man, which uh, we read in Deuteronomy, you're not to do that, or he fears man. And he has found a very clever way, both around the Mosaic Law and around the Roman Law, which which prohibited the Jews from carrying out capital punishment. And simply, he has found a way to remain popular with the people, and he is the consummate politician. That's your only other choice. Either he followed the law or he didn't. If he didn't, he's a sinner and he's a liar and he's a fraud. Um, But maybe he didn't write that. Maybe he didn't write people in glass houses should not throw stones. Maybe he wrote Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 7, at the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. Maybe he wrote that. Is she worthy to be put to death according to the Mosaic law? The answer is yes. Is she not guilty of adultery? Yes, there's no question about that. She was caught in the very act. What about the man? Is he not guilty too? Deuteronomy 22:22 22, 22 says, "If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. so shalt thou put away evil from Israel." So she was taken in the very act, so we asked ourselves the question, Where is the man? Where is the man? Let me say this to you. It doesn't matter where the man is. God will deal with him later. She is still guilty. Whether or not they ever bring him on to trial, it doesn't matter. She is guilty. They caught her in the very act. She has committed adultery for which she shall die. So after he wrote that, perhaps, perhaps he continued and he said here, the hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put to death and afterwards the hands of all the people. In other words, if you were a witness to this, if you caught her in the very act, you're to throw the first stone Then everybody else. So there's nobody in the audience here. You're, you're, going to be, you're, you're involved in this one way or another. When they have thrown the first stones, then everybody else in the nation is to stone them. So all those people in the audience, actually they're defendants, but they don't think they are. They're to throw a stone too then he lifts himself up and that's when he says he that is without sin among you let him first cast a stone at her again who would that be that would be the witnesses and the accusers the ones that caught her in the very act so what has he done when he said that he has affirmed the law and that the wages of sin is death then we see that he stoops down and he writes he writes again now maybe he wrote something that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 19 which our deacon read to us as well. In Deuteronomy 19, it talks about false witnesses, and it uses a couple of different works in the he- words in the Hebrews there, but we understand a false witness, obviously, is somebody that is, um, is lying. In verse 16, the word false witness there is a word that is translated elsewhere as unrighteous. If you're an unrighteous witness, then there's, that's problematic. Down in verse 18, it uses the word twice. It says, And the judges shall make diligent inquisition, and behold, if, he, if the witness be a false witness, that so means a lying witness, and hath, identified, and hath testified falsely against his brother, then ye shall do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. Well, the root word that appears there as false witness is a word which means to have deceitful intentions, to have treacherous intentions, Behavior, So there's an issue about what's going on in the heart of that witness. And what we should appreciate is what it says in verse 19 then, what you would do to that witness. Then shall you do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother, so shalt thou put evil away from among you. Verse 21. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In other words, God takes a dim view of perjury. If you perjure yourself under the Mosaic law, whatever the crime that the individual was accused of, that you have falsely witnessed against them, you shall suffer those consequences. These people that were engaged in uh, bearing false witness against this woman that had a party to her crime... They should have been stoned to death. Now think about that when the Lord goes to the cross, because false witnesses are found to testify against him. They should have been nailed, flogged, scourged, and nailed to a cross. That's not how our, our judicial system works, and it's a shame. That would I guarantee that would cut a lot of court cases off the books. People would not perjure themselves. Now this principle of doing unto them as they would have done unto the uh, witness... Uh, as they would have done under the person that they are falsely witnessing against. Excuse me. (laughs) That's a principle that we see elsewhere in the book, in the Bible. Recall uh, when Daniel was cast into the lion's den. What happened to the individuals who had treacherously conspired against him to put him to death? When he was taken out of the lion's den, the Darius, the king, took... All of them and all of their families and put them in the lion's den. What they would have done to Daniel, he did unto them. That's the principle that we see here. We also see it in the book of Esther, not only um, with respect to Haman, who was going to hang Mordecai, he was actually hung on his own gallows, but with respect to all the Jewish people as well. They were given weapons to defend themselves, and I think they were giving them a head start (laughs) to go after the people that would have um, tried to kill them. So that principle carries itself throughout the Bible. Now, back to this idea of a false witness so that we can appreciate its broader context here. We see that word um, false witness as translated as unrighteous witness in other places. In Exodus 23.1, it says, Put not thy hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. That word first finds its use, or I should say another place it finds its use, in Genesis chapter 16, verse 5, with respect to Sarah and her husband Abram. Now, you remember when they were waiting to have a child and they didn't have one? Whose idea was it that Abraham should lie with Hagar? Whose idea was that? That was his wife, Sarah's. In Genesis 16, 5, it says, And Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong, that's that word unrighteousness or false witness, my wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid unto thy bosom. So, Abraham and Hagar, they are guilty of adultery. But Sarah cannot bear witness against them because it was her idea. She was party to that sin. She's as guilty of the sin as they are. So in like manner, these scribes and these Pharisees cannot bear witness against this woman because they undoubtedly had a hand in it. The Lord tells us that this thing was done to set him up as a means to tempt him or to test him. They have something to do with her adultery. They might have seduced the woman or sent someone in particular to seduce her and to uh, lie with her. And we know this by inference because, one, the man is not present, and two, the woman, as I said, was brought with the intent to test Jesus and to accuse him. That's verse 6. And we also know how this works itself out. They all leave convicted by their own conscience. Not by the Holy Ghost, we know, but they're convicted by their own conscience. So we can appreciate that the Lord has said something in the law that they know to be true because they go out from the eldest to the youngest. The eldest ones would be more likely to know the law. So again, in God's law, you cannot bear witness against someone if you are a party to the crime. Accusers are all guilty of violating the Mosaic law and they therefore should be stoned as they would have had done unto her. So we see that Jesus upholds and affirms the law. He has judged Justly, We know that the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The law is good if a man use it lawfully and the Lord has used it lawfully and he has justly judged in the matter here. Every single person on that stage is guilty of violating the law. They're all guilty of spiritual adultery and with respect to the Mosaic law, we know that all of the accusers are guilty of having a hand in the adultery of that particular woman. Now, how does this work itself out here in Romans 3:19? It says, "Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth should be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God." And that's what happens here. They're all guilty. They're all worthy of death, as indeed are you and me. So, all the defendants, the audience, the accusers, everybody up there is guilty except for Christ, except the judge. So the the stage is really only divided between two groups, Christ and everybody else. Now, the um, chief priests and the Pharisees made a rather um, uh, proud statement, an ignorant statement. They said here in verse 49, but these people who know not the law are cursed. Well, there's some truth to that. Um, It's a very self-righteous statement. What it implies is if you don't know the law and all its provisions excuse me, that if you do know the law and all its provisions, then you will keep it and you're not under the curse. But that's not true because the law says, and Galatians 3.10 tells us that, for as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse. We know that nobody can keep the law. If you're under the law, then you are cursed. But there's something else that is true about that statement that is more important about knowing the law. I had said earlier that the more you know the law, the more you know about Christ. In Matthew 23, 23, the Lord speaking in Matthew 23, 23 says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and an ass and cummin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law judgment, mercy, and faith. They've omitted those things from the law, and all of those things are in the law. The two most basic provisions of the law would be the wages of sin is death and substitution. Substitution is baked into the law. The law makes provision for substitution. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we see that with respect to Adam and Eve and how the Lord deals with that. We know that the Lord clothed them, and so a substitution was made there, and we begin to see immediately there the gospel that Christ is in view here. And we know that in Genesis chapter 4, Abel offered you know, the firstling of his flock, and that was pleasing unto the Lord. And from that point, from Genesis 3 all the way down, we have a substitutionary offering system. So substitution is in there. That's the part of the law that they don't know, the part about mercy, and that it's, is its most basic provision. The Lord talks about that in Psalm chapter 40, and he talks about it with respect to himself in John chapter 5. In Psalm 40, verse 6 and 7, Psalm forty six and 7, we read, "...sacrifices and offerings thou didst not desire." That wasn't the point, that God would receive these offerings. "...burnt offerings and sin offerings hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart." It's always been talking about Christ. God didn't want the sacrifices of animals. We know that in the book of Hebrews helps us explain that. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But Christ can. He said that in John chapter 3 here. It was said of him that, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. It's always talking about what Christ would do. That's His delight is to do the will of God. Jesus delighted to be manifest in the flesh and to um, die for the sins of his people. In John chapter 5, 39, verse 40, I usually talk about this in the context of helping us appreciate that all scriptures testify of him, but think of him as the substitute here. Search the scripture, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And you would not come to me that you might have life. You would not come to me, the sinner's substitute, that you might have life. They wouldn't come to him. God is righteous, and he judges all sin even if he finds it in himself, even if he finds it in his son. So I want us to uh, appreciate that. Don't take that out of context here because God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ went to the cross justly judged by the father because of the imputation of our sin to him. So the question is, do you know the law? Are you ignorant like these people are? Do you know the law? Do you know the mercy in the law? Do you know the substitute? Isaiah 53, 6 speaks of what I'm sharing with us here about the sin being imputed to him. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, as I've already said, for God hath made him sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And this is through faith in Christ. So God poured out his wrath on his son because he was guilty of the sins of his people. He was justly judged and condemned, and I was justly forgiven because Jesus paid it all. He paid the full penalty that was, um, I was obligated to pay uh, because of my sin. Now, John chapter 8 here, he does not condemn the woman. And why doesn't he condemn her? He said he wasn't going to condemn her. Verse 17, God sent not his son, uh, John 3, 17, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's the law that condemns a person. And God here we see upholds the law. He is the faithful and righteous witness. And he leaves her with an admonition that we need to think about. He says in John chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Women, where art those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. The Lord says that twice in Scripture. He said it once in John chapter 5, verse 14, uh, when he healed the man. That was the man at the pool of Bethesda whom the Lord later finds in the temple. Jesus says that to him, sin no more. He says it to him when he's in the temple. Same thing here. He says that to this woman when she's in the temple. There is only one place an individual can sin no more, and that's in Christ. In Romans eight eleven it says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ. Christ Jesus, who walked not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You're in Christ, there is no condemnation. She's in the temple, as was that other man. In First John chapter three, verse six, it says, "Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not." First John 5:17, "Whosoever is born of God sinneth not. If you're in Christ, you sin no more. And So we need to appreciate, again, that fact that this was said twice while they were, she was to people that were in the temple. It's um, for us to appreciate that to be in Christ, you sin no more. So when Jesus came on the first time, he came to be the sinner's substitute. He came to save. Jesus is the righteous judge. He upheld the law here. And Jesus will condemn as the judge the next time he comes in Psalm 19 verse 9 and I'll finish with this. It says, "The judgment of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether." So let us all put our faith and trust in him now. Amen. Amen.